I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Michael Patton. This is Theology Unplugged, and uh, Sam and Tim are here with me at the Credo House in studio, Credo House, Edmond, Oklahoma. That's where we're coming to you live from. If you have not had a chance to stop by the Credo House, we'd love to have you come by, get a tour, get a Luther latte. It's a, it's a lot of fun here. Um, we are going to be continuing today on our series on Calvinism and Invitation to Calvinism. Last week we did a bridge from where we were to where we are going, from total depravity to this idea that we're going to talk about today called unconditional election, and um, hopefully built up the need, as as last week we talked about total depravity being a, a deadness towards God that we have been born with, and, and as dead people are dead and they can't make themselves alive, we need something to happen to us in order to become alive towards God once again. Mm-hmm. And so we are. That, that, that's what we're going to be talking about here today. I don't know if uh, we have anything that we need to discuss beforehand, Tim. I think we're okay. I think uh, keep keep your eye on the website, and if you aren't on our mail list, perhaps that's what we'll talk about right now. If you aren't on our email list, uh, that is one of the main ways that we let you know about new things that are coming out. We usually don't, at most, we'll send you an email a week uh, letting you know what's happening on the blog, theology in the news, uh, word of the day, all sorts of different things. And so uh, if you aren't on our email list, just go to creedhouse.org and uh, click on right there and join our email list. Has uh, the theology app come out yet <laughs> so the, let, let, let me just tell you about this we are so excited about this there, we are coming out with an app that will be the entire theology program so it'll be over 60 hours of theological training it'll be all of our powerpoints all of our workbooks everything bundled into one uh, iphone app right now we're going to hopefully have droid apps ipad apps all that stuff but the iphone app is about 90% done at the time of this broadcast. And so we'll see uh, how long it takes us to bridge that last 10%. Uh, but we're really excited to bring this out. We think that this will allow the theology program to get into more hands than ever before. All right. Well, good. Um, well, I, I don't know if we're going to eventually come out with a theology unplugged app, but they may be something part of our general theology app. Those of you who are listening to us, I'd like to thank you for uh, the comments and the feedback that you continue to give. Please, uh, during any time this broadcast, uh, while we're going through this series, uh, feel free to write us. I will get the email at theologyunplugged at reclaimingthemind.org theologyunplugged at reclaimingthemind.org that way you can email some questions we got some questions too we're not going to get to those today but we thank you for emailing those in we thank you those of you who listen to us on iTunes thanks for uh, making the comments and continue to keep those up because that brings more people in to listen to us and it does direct feature broadcasts it directs some of the blogs that we do as well we definitely read these comments and say hey yeah let's let's go ahead and do that let's do a broadcast on that or let's write a post on that and so so we're definitely reading those, so please post. All right, Tim, tell us about uh, Tulip. That's what we're discussing. Yeah, so we've been go- we've been going through this uh, Calvinist 
construct that, that we've agreed is a good way to discuss Calvinism. TULIP is the acronym. T stands for total depravity. In our own, we can do nothing. U, which we're going to talk about today, is unconditional election. That'll be how the ball starts rolling towards someone's salvation. L will be uh, the limited atonement. I will be irresistible grace, and then P will be perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, depending on the way that we look at it, as Sam talked about last week. So that's TULIP. It basically describes in a quick way uh, what Calvinism is and, and how Calvinists will read and understand the Bible. Okay, we've, uh, so we've established that most, uh, at least most Protestants, whether you're Calvinist, there are many, and you believe in total depravity. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Our will is is inclined not only towards evil, but towards hatred and rejection of God. Now we come in with this. I, I don't know if Tulip necessarily goes in a logical procession, but I think at this point it does mm-hmm. because uh, we're asking the question, okay, then if we're all dead, how is anybody alive? You know, How do they get to be alive? Um, and this then comes in the doctrine of unconditional election, which us, we're making an invitation to Calvinism. I think we would say this is a very persuasive point. Yes, it is. Uh, and it's important to, to remember uh, right from the beginning that all Bible-believing Christians believe in election. Arminians believe in election. Um, the key here is the adjective unconditional mm-hmm. uh, because some of you who are listening may not have uh, given it much thought, but uh, if you read the scriptures, you'll discover that uh, the uh, noun elect is used several, quite a few times, a couple of dozen times in the New Testament alone. Uh, you know, Ephesians 1, which we all believe, God chose us. He elected us in Christ. Uh, we're told that he predestined us for adoptions as sons. So all Christians believe in election. All believe that God uh, in eternity past, um, before the foundation of the world, chose uh, men and women, and they are the ones and they alone who will ultimately inherit eternal life uh, and spend eternity in the presence of our great triune God. The issue is the basis on which that choice is made. What are the grounds or ground upon which that choice by God is made. Uh, The Arminian affirms conditional election. Uh, That is to say that God's choice is conditioned on something outside of himself. It's conditioned or it's suspended upon his foreknowledge of who will avail themselves of the prevenient grace that he has universally bestowed and by their own act of free will respond to Christ when the gospel is presented. So according to the Arminian, uh, God has foreknowledge. He foresees uh, those who will respond positively to the gospel when they are confronted with it, and he chooses them on that basis. Uh, The Calvinist says, because he he or she does not believe in prevenient grace, that all mankind would forever and finally repudiate the gospel, reject the gospel, that if God were to base election on his foreknowledge of those who will respond positively, nobody gets chosen because nobody responds positively. Because we're all dead. We're all dead. We're all hostile. We're all uh, opposed to the truth and will consistently reject it unless God intervenes sovereignly in our lives. So the Calvinist says that 
God could justly have allowed all mankind to remain in their sin, in their rebellion, their hostility toward him. But in order to glorify himself and his son, he has sovereignly chosen out from among the mass of humanity uh, men and women whom he has then determined to bring to faith in Christ and into eternal life. So election or this choice according to the Calvinist view, is unconditional. That is to say, it is not based upon anything that we do. It is not grounded or conditioned upon anything that God foresees in us because the only thing that he foresees in us is unbelief. And so were he not to unconditionally and sovereignly choose and elect individuals to inherit eternal life, no one would ever come to faith in Jesus. Um. Election is, uh, you know, it's just one of those words. It's a, it's a bad word for many people. I remember talking about this with my mother all my life growing up, uh, or at least, you know, once I began to be introduced to these issues and was mm-hmm. persuaded that uh, unconditional election was was uh, what the Bible taught. We never got along when we talked about this. I mean, it was a terrible thing. We got to the point for, you know, years that we would talk about it and it would just, the hostility would elevate, the emotions would elevate. And finally we had to come to some point and I said, mom, we don't need to talk about this anymore. You know, let's just, whenever we're together, let's talk about those other things because it was just a point of, of departure and, and became quite sad. Uh, in, in our relate that part of our relationship, uh, whenever you hear the word election, that's what you automatically think. When you hear the word predestination, when you hear the word chosen, all of these things, which are biblical words, we're not making them up. It's not no. that Calvin and his institutes, you know, made these words up. Some people would think that he made up predestination, but the Bible ha- uses these words very much, very uh, with much liberality, especially in the New Testament and in context as well. I mean, you can't, I think, make an argument from some of these passages that well, he's not really talking about that. I mean, he's using condition, like he's using election and predestination in very clear. These aren't obscure passages. These these are main road passages that he's speaking about these things. So having said that then, we I think we could be very confident and say that the history of the church, the historic church, has believed in election. Okay? Period. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about a debate that happened just in the 16th century right now, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not the church is going to believe in election. However, this doctrine of election, this doctrine of predestination – has undergone some degree of development. And I think that this would be some something that we'd say in the 16th century with the Reformers, with Calvin and with Luther, and with many of the Reformers that followed them, this issue of election became further defined and, the way that I'd put it, matured within the church. But... You know, here's the thing that I like to do anytime we're discussing any of these things is try to look at it from a historic standpoint first and ask the question, okay, then whenever we're talking about this idea of election, what did the early church believe about election? If it's so prominent in the scriptures, they must have dealt with it. What did the early church, what did the first Christians after the apostles died, whenever they read the scriptures, how did they read it? How did the medieval church read it? How did the late uh, just before the Reformation Church read it. And I want to hear this controversy that you guys are talking about historically rather than just from the Credo House 2011. 
what did the early church believe about election, the doctrine of election? Guys? Sam's the one that's written an entire book about yeah, this subject. Well, I've got his book well. right here in front of me, Chosen for Life. Sam Storms, your name is on it. And so, I mean, I'm just looking to you as the uh, giver of all fruit with regards to the election. Well, there isn't uh, as much evidence as we might like to discern if there was a consistent perspective on election uh, in the post-apostolic age, at least not that I am aware of. Um, you have occasional references here and there. I, I don't know, honestly, right off the top of my head, what, for example, Irenaeus or Tertullian or even Athanasius would have believed or Justin Martyr. Um, we know that um, Augustine uh, was not the first. I mean, obviously, um, uh, his view as it was articulated was one that, although it did create some measure of controversy, um, uh, was not the uh, initial expression of this. It per- perhaps was in, in, in terms of how systematically he articulated it. But uh, Augustine, um, trying to remember, born, what was it, 386? I don't know. I think I think it's three eighty four, three eighty six, late fourth century. Yeah, somewhere along in there. So it's not too far removed from uh, the early church. But um, again, in terms of, do we have any treatises or documents written by uh, some of these early fathers that explicitly address the issue of election in the way Augustine did? And I think the answer to that is no. I'm not aware of any. Now. Now, having said that, I think a lot of people pause and say, okay, well, if the early church didn't believe it or the early church didn't express it the way that you guys are getting ready to express it, then I don't think it's very important and you guys shouldn't be given an invitation to this thing called Calvinism, which is something in the 16th century, you know, 17th century, um, that is developed more fully then. And I think we got to be very careful because it's so important to all of these issues of theology is just a basic understanding of how doctrine develops. Usually we start with words, you know. For example, we say Christ died for you, right? If I come to you and I, I, I'm, I'm talking to you about Christ, I say Christ died for you. Now, I don't have to necessarily unpack this little preposition for, but it is loaded with so much. And it's loaded with so much history and, and further terminology that we will get into later. Whenever I say that Christ died for you, here's what I mean. I mean he is your substitutionary. Okay, there's a big word, substitutionary. Penal, which is a legal term. Atonement that has been made on your behalf because you deserve the wrath of God, whereas he took the wrath of God. Now, that's a lot to unpack. Right. Well, and, it, and, and what I think you're saying, too, is that church history has led you to use those terms. So in the first century, you might have just said, Christ died for you. But then it was later when men like like Pelagian, Pelagius, who, who we talked about last time, men like that came along and said, well, Jesus is actually just a great example. You don't really need a Savior per se, 100%. But, you know, Christ died for you in case if you would possibly need him to help show you some good things that you can do to get to heaven. And so by 
you adding these terms, that's church history coming into play with saying that that just saying Christ died for you can be taken and be totally misconstrued, and entire uh, cults can really be built off of that statement in a way that's interpreted incorrectly. And so doctrine develops in the way that that people have misinterpreted things that have made us more accurately and carefully uh, communicate what the Bible teaches. And, and let's also remember that in the first two to 250 years of the church's history, the language, the biblical language of election is found often. It's found in their commentaries. It's found in their sermons. But the issues that the early church was seeking to address were not these kinds of uh, soteriological matters relating to salvation. They were primarily issues relating to Christology. Who is Jesus? Is he God? How can we be monotheists and affirm that uh, Jesus is the incarnate Son of God? Um, the Arian controversy that led to the Council of Nicaea. Uh, how does Christianity relate to the pagan culture? Uh, so there were most of the issues in the early church were more Christological and apologetic in nature, in a, in a sense of they were defending the the reasonableness and the rationality of the Christian faith, the bodily resurrection, and and even the humanity of Christ. So. There are seasons in the life of the early church that um, were not necessarily conducive to the opportunity for theologians to sit down and reflect deeply on and write lengthy treatises concerning things like election. Uh, that was something that really didn't um, begin to take place until after Nicaea, until after Constantinople, and Christianity was uh, capable of uh, flourishing more, both intellectually and culturally. So we got to, in saying that we don't have much written, if anything, in terms of a systematic document in the first couple of hundred years, doesn't mean they didn't believe it, doesn't mean that they didn't talk about it, or they didn't use the biblical language. One of the things that you could compare this to is a, a strand of DNA. You know, you got, you got a DNA, and I can I could take out a piece of DNA, and if I knew how to do all this stuff, put it under a microscope, take a picture of it, and, and take Sam's DNA and say, Sam, this is you. You know, This is you at your essential components. This is you, though, developed and matured. This is how each part of the DNA played itself out in your life. But at one time, it hadn't played out. And whenever we look at doctrine, I think that's one of the things that we have to do is say that the Bible lays out the DNA. The Bible lays out every essential component. Everything is there. But as the maturity, as the church matures throughout the ages, different parts of that DNA begin to develop depending upon what you know, the church is going through at the time. And as Sam says, the early church is dealing with certain things, uh, you know, trying to stay alive for one thing, but for another thing, what are these essential components? And they didn't ask questions such as, what does it mean that Christ died for me until later? Uh, you know, and especially as it develops uh, to around the time of St. Anselm and the satisfaction theory of the atonement. That was a major development in our DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the, in the fourth century with Augustine and Pelagian, we developed quite a bit in another aspect of our DNA. And so I, I, I'm sorry for going off on this, and maybe you guys are wondering why I do this, but one of the reasons is because there's just so many people, especially that are trying to do theology, that start with the assumption that I want to get back to the earliest church, those first few hundred years, whenever the church was the purest, and be just like them. 
And while I understand that tendency and say, okay, what do they believe about the doctrine of election? Well, they believed in election. They just hadn't developed it any yet. Well, that's where I want to be then. I don't want to be Calvinist because that's too developed. Okay, that's fine, but you know you're committing yourself to a an idea that I believe lacks justification. To say I want to get back to my DNA, to say I want to get back to the way I looked whenever I was a baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think we can justify that because we take God out of the equation and say that the Holy Spirit cannot develop the church's doctrine and help us to understand what does it mean that Christ died for me? What does it mean that Christ is the Son of God? What does it mean that God predestined us? That we have to keep these somehow in seed DNA form in order for us to be truly doing theology. I don't subscribe to that method of historical theological development. And so we, we, while we do look at it develop, we do want to, uh, uh, address that this issue of unconditional election uh, is part of the development of the church history. Mm-hmm. And, and what we're expressing is something that developed most, uh, I think, um, I want to say most fully, but, but had its Cambrian explosion in the 16th century. Yes. And we have to remember also that um, from the time um, not long after Augustine died, uh, up until the time of the Protestant Reformation, a span of about 1,000 years, uh, that theology and um, the uh, uh, kind of the academic and scholarly formulation of the understanding of Christian truth was dominated almost entirely by the Roman Catholic Church and its emergence, and uh, and therefore it's going to reflect to a large extent the Catholic views on the sacraments and everything from baptismal regeneration to the uh, unique role of works. Now, there were uh, individuals, I mean, um, Gottschalk, and that's a name that probably nobody has ever heard, <laughs> um, G-O-T-T-S-C-H-A-L-K. Gottschalk was an 8th century um, theologian who was very much committed to Augustine's view of unconditional election and actually was imprisoned over it and um, uh, went somewhat deranged in prison, signed a document recanting his view, and then when he came to his senses, uh, recanted his recanting. Hmm. And um, But he was very much an advocate of Augustine's view. And, of course, uh, most uh, people who've read St. Thomas Aquinas carefully would acknowledge that Aquinas was very Augustinian in his view of God's election and salvation. So there were individuals here and there, even within that span of time, who affirmed what we would call anachronistically, obviously, because Calvin didn't come to the 16th century, but would affirm a Calvinistic view of election. But it wasn't until the you know the pre-Reformation period um, um, and leading up into the 16th century that it begins to become much more a focal issue. Hmm. Well, we're talking about unconditional election, folks, and... The problem with this and the reason why we preface it and the reason why we pad it and the reason why we're talking about it the way we're talking about it and trying to be careful is because I think it is going to be somewhat jolting to a lot of people. Some of you all have never heard this before. Some of you all have never read through the scriptures that uh, talk about this. Um, some of you have read through the scriptures that talk about this and you just you scratch your head a little bit and you say there must be an explanation out there that uh, – that uh, uh, provides me with a different explanation 
situation than what I see happening here. But what we're saying is whenever, whenever we talk about unconditional election, we are saying that God elects individuals to salvation unconditionally, meaning that there is no condition that they have met or that they can meet in order to be his elect. And only the elect are those who are saved. Yeah, and I think that's what people struggle with the most and why we're prefacing this and why it is shocking is because no one really probably would have any big issue with this idea that that God unconditionally elects people to salvation without that second idea of, well, then that therefore must mean, too, that certain people are sent to hell based on nothing that they did. And so, so that is that's the hardest part that that is going to say, well, this must not be. There must be something that God saw in that person, and when He looked ahead, He must have saw something in that person to say, okay, that person is is wicked. They're going to be wicked. They should spend forever in hell. Yeah, a couple of points you raised, Tim. There's very very crucial for people to remember because you're right, Michael. The when they hear this. Uh, if we had a feedback on our program, we would hear screams uh, coming back through our microphones or our headsets uh, to the effect that this is unfair, mm-hmm. that um, uh, this means that there are conceivably millions of people who are crying out to God for salvation, wanting to come to faith in Jesus, but because they haven't been elected, God won't let them. That is simply not True, because total depravity says we're all going to hell. Right, you know, apart from God's amazing, miraculous grace, we're all going there. And so it's not like there are a whole group of people that are begging to to come to God, and God's not letting them. Right. I mean, we believe very strongly when Jesus said, "Whosoever will may come." We believe that's true. If you will to come to Christ, He will receive you, and He will not cast you out, as John six says. The problem is. Uh, we're all um, whosoever wants. We won't come. We refuse to come. And the only way that anybody is enabled to come is by the sovereign work of grace in the human heart, which we'll talk about when we get to the subject of irresistible grace, the eye of tulip. But then in one other point, it's important to say, uh, and I always say this when I talk about unconditional election, when I talk about the fact that um, that God has set his saving and sovereign love on only some uh, of the human race and not all. I also say, but we must remember, nobody goes to hell except those who deserve to. Because when you affirm unconditional election, it sounds as if you're suggesting that God sends people to hell for no fault of their own. Mm. And that is not true. The Bible is very clear. The only people who suffer eternal condemnation apart from Christ are those who deserve to. And the important point to remember is we all deserve to. And the only reason why some do not then enter into eternal separation is because of the sovereign, unconditional mercy of God in Christ. So we have to keep those things in mind. Number one, Uh, It's not as if people are clamoring to get into the kingdom and God is locked in by some eternal decree and says, I'm sorry, I already made up my mind in eternity past. Uh, No matter how badly you repent or no matter how much you trust in Jesus, I'm sorry, you weren't one of the elect, you can't come. Hmm. That is a horrific caricature. It is simply not true. Hmm. That's not what we're talking about. 
Jesus says it clearly, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Mm. And secondly, the only people who ultimately suffer eternal condemnation are those who deserve to. Nobody is in hell unjustly. Nor are they in hell trying to get to heaven and saying, you know, let us in like you said. I mean, it's they hate God. Nobody deserves to be in heaven, and everybody in hell does deserve to be there. Yeah. That's that's a that's a reality we have to learn how to embrace because it's very clearly taught in Scripture. Next week we're going to talk about uh, the specific passages that deal with the, the doctrine of election because I think we've talked about it from purely in theological, historical, some of the things we've alluded to some of the Scriptures. But somebody may be asking, okay, well, you, you've built me up here now. Get me to the point where from Scriptures I can see this doctrine of unconditional election. And I think... Obviously, we're going to head towards some passages in John, John chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 1, and Romans chapter 9. Those are usually the passages that I look at and, and I think of most specifically when we're talking about the doctrine of election. So, Good. And Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 and 1 Thessalonians and... Uh, John ten and, mm-hmm. and Acts many and Acts thirteen forty eight and, Acts. and uh, he wrote the book on it. He's just bragging. Now. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just. I want people to understand that in First Peter chapter one, there are a lot yeah. of texts that talk about this issue. Well, so. we'll get into that next week. Uh, uh, once again, Sam, I, I know you don't didn't know I was bringing this in here, but we do have chosen for life here that was written by Sam Storms. This is the case for the for divine election and specifically unconditional election. Great book to get put out by crossway chosen for life uh folks i hope you are enjoying this invitation to calvinism we are very serious about our invitation here uh, but we also want you to be very uh, well informed and educated on this so um I, i guess until next week we're coming to you now from the credo house and we say goodbye from the credo house have a great day you've been listening to theology unplugged Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.